Let me welcome you and invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Luke, to the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. As Elsina read it to us earlier, the word of the Lord comes to us on this day as a parable intended to form us and to shape us. A few weeks ago during the message, I spoke of the idea of the concept of spiritual formation, that is of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that continues to shape us and form us. In the Paznaz congregation, we believe in the continual ongoing work of the Holy Spirit to refine us, to draw us closer and closer, ever closer to the holiness of God that calls us irresistibly to desire and to seek to be more like the God that we worship and less like the flesh that we are. And that requires continual forming. It doesn't mean it's a pursuit of guilt. It doesn't mean it's a pursuit of frustration, but it means it's a pursuit of joy in which we declare ourselves, we embrace the idea of being learners and letting the Holy Spirit teach us, inform us, make us aware, if you will. My wife leaned over to me last night and said, do you know I did not know, but then I knew, and it was for my benefit. And that's my hope for us in this series as we make our way through the gospels, through the parables of Jesus, that they will shape us, inform us, and that if we learn something new, don't be offended by it, but say, thanks be to God, I now see that which I did not see before in my own life. I now know that which I did not know before about myself. Because I want to be part of a community of faith in the kingdom of heaven that embraces this idea that we are in this together and we will grow together and we, we, we will be the people of God together and we'll be informed together. So when the Holy Spirit leans over to us and says, did you know? And our response is, thanks be to God, now I know. That the teaching of the Holy Spirit through the word of God is to be embraced and receive with blessing and joy and not offense. And so my prayer is as we do this exercise today that it will be an exercise of the Holy Spirit in our lives, inviting us into the presence of God ever deeper, ever closer in a way that says to us, we are so deeply loved that the Holy Spirit comes to speak into our lives in ways that form us and shape us. My hope is that we never become complacent and arrive at a station in life in which we say, I am formed enough. I know all I need to know. I am complete enough. 
or there is danger in that space for us. And so may God bless the word to us on this day. Let us pray. And now, O Lord, may we hear the words and voice of Jesus in the way you would have us to hear them. May the Holy Spirit teach us so that we may be the people of God you would have us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. As we heard this parable read to us this morning, it's one of those parables that's easy to engage in because it presents to us two stereotypes. A Pharisee and a tax collector. And when those two names are mentioned, if you have read the New Testament, they carry some baggage with them from the Gospels. And they bring to us the problem of stereotypes. A stereotype is a word that means something that is widely held but fixed and oversimplified. An image or idea of a particular type of person or thing. So let me ask you a question. When you think of a Pharisee, what do you think of? Is there a mental image formed in your mind? Characteristics and behaviors? When you think of a tax collector, is there a mental image formed in your mind? With characteristics and behaviors? You see, those become stereotypes. And if we embrace those stereotypes too strongly when we hear the parable, those stereotypes can rob us of what Jesus hopes for us to learn. Could rob us of how Jesus wants to form us in our understanding of what he hopes that we will hear from this parable. The other challenge with stereotypes is that it's become common practice in our culture to use them. To describe other people and assume that the persons listening to our descriptions understand the stereotype in the same way we do. Here are some popular stereotypes. Generational stereotypes, baby boomers and millennials. When I was at the university, I hired a lot of millennials. And the, the stereotype of millennials is that they've been coddled and cradled and they've been treated as if everybody's a winner and there are no losers. And a common myth among the stereotypes of millennials is they don't want to work. They want it handed to them. After all, in Little League, they all got a trophy because everybody won. but I found the stereotypes to be false. And you can go all the way through the generational stereotypes, Gen Z, Gen X. We have political stereotypes, Democrats and Republicans. Those are thrown around very, very freely today, assuming that they're all the same All Republicans think the same, 
all Democrats think the same, and we pigeonhole people into categories and stereotypes. And we say and repeat crazy things like, you can't be a Christian and be a Democrat. And Democrats say some crazy things, like you can't be a Republican and be a Christian. Stereotypes don't serve us well. There are stereotypes about what it means to be an evangelical Christian in this season. And they're repeated far too often and far too detrimentally. And so as we come to this parable, to avoid the temptation of stereotypes, let's take a look at what these two men have in common. One of the ways you break down stereotypes, say, what is it that we have in common? If I belong to one political party and you belong to another political party, what is it we have in common? The person giving their stereotypes will say nothing, which in my view is an unfortunate, immature perspective. So what do these two men have in common? Both share a common spiritual tradition. They're both of the Jewish faith. Both go to the temple. Both have access to the temple. Both have a need and a desire to pray. Both pray with remarkable self-awareness. And in some ways, they are polar opposites of each other. One is well-regarded in Jewish culture and one is despised in Jewish culture. Those are the things, the experiences that they have in common. We must remember also that these two men are caricatures. A caricature is a description that is designed to exaggerate certain characteristics, and as such, it is not a completely accurate representation of either what it means to be a Pharisee or what it means to be a tax collector. In other words, Jesus, in telling this parable, uses some exaggerated caricature of these two men to get our attention. We have to remember they were not real people. They were just part of the storyline of the parable. This is not something Jesus actually observed or saw. But it is something he describes for a point and a purpose. And as we heard the scripture read, and as you have it before you in your open Bible, this parable draws out some dilemmas or subtexts of stereotypes, such as self-righteousness, humility, grace and mercy. And while these two men did not actually exist, the portrait of either man would have captured the imaginations of Jesus. Amy Jill Levine helps us with her observation. In Jesus' parable, neither Pharisee nor tax collector behaves in the manner that a first century Jewish audience would expect. Listeners would be surprised that a Pharisee would be dismissive of others in the community. They would be surprised that a tax collector could be repentant. And they would be provoked, as we all should be, by the implications of the relationship between the two men. 
And the relationship with the two, between the two men is centered not in their differences, but in their common need. For us, our understanding of the Pharisee has been shaped by the poor treatment they have received in the Gospels. They are not well regarded by the writers of the Gospels. For they are often seen as questioning Jesus. They are often seen as hostile to Jesus. Some Pharisees are paired with the priests when it comes to plotting against Jesus that eventually leads to his trial and his death on the cross. And our own stereotypes of Pharisees, shaped by what we learn about them in the Gospels, immediately shape our attitude about the man Jesus refers to. And while not treated very well in the Gospels, in the Jewish community, they were highly regarded. They were regarded as upright in the community and persons sincere and devout in their duties for their study of the word, their care of the poor, their attention to prayer, their attention to worship, their engagement with those in need. And due to our own stereotypes of Pharisees, we may read the Pharisee as boastful and prideful about his activities and making him unrighteous. However, another perspective would understand that there is nothing wrong with being self-aware of what one is doing in support of the work of God. Let me ask you a question. Are you aware of your efforts to support the work of God? Do you talk about those things? Do you serve in ministries that support the work of God? That doesn't make you unrighteous to talk about them, to discuss them, In fact, being self-aware of what one is doing in support of the work of God may reflect a healthy understanding that one is doing what God desires, caring for the poor, the orphan, the widow, the immigrant, loving your neighbor, loving God. The tax collector would have been known as well by the Jewish community, but in a disturbing, resentful way as one who conspired with the oppressive Roman regime to extract taxes and payments from their fellow Jewish citizens, taking advantage of their own people to line their own pockets. You will recall that there were tax collectors among Jesus' followers. Matthew, Levi, and Zacchaeus, to name the ones that we know of. And again, Jesus turns his listeners' understanding on its proverbial ears because the Pharisee and the tax collector are not the target of the parable. It is easy to get caught up in the story of the parable and tax collector and think that Jesus is saying something to those groups of people and yet that's not who the object of the parable is. That's not the target audience. Jesus only uses the Pharisee and the tax collector to teach the target audience about humility and grace and mercy and brokenness. 
to understand the target audience. Let's return to verse 9. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. The target audience weren't Pharisees and tax collectors. It were those people who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Here's the question of the day. Who might have been in Luke's mind when he provided this framing observation as an introduction to Jesus' words? Who might have Luke been talking about when he said, Jesus told this parable to a group of people who were overconfident about their own righteousness? Is it possible? Hang on to your hat. Buckle yourself into your seat. Who might have Jesus been thinking about when he spoke to those who were overconfident in their righteousness? Let me give you some ideas that will perhaps startle you. Is it possible that Luke was thinking of some of Jesus' disciples and followers? That'll set you back for a moment. After all, think about it this way. Was he thinking of those who pride himself as followers of the teacher and we would remember the request of James and John to sit at the right hand of Jesus? Was he thinking of the argument among, among the disciples written of in Luke 9, 46 as to which among them would be the greatest in the kingdom? Or perhaps he was remembering the, the request of the mother of James and John that Matthew recorded when she went to Jesus. I have known some mothers like this. When she went to Jesus and said, why would you, would you decide right now that they can sit next to you in heaven? Now, I'm all for mothers that promote their children. Sometimes. <laughs> but when we think about Luke's context, who might he have been thinking of when he wrote this? It's easy for us to read this parable and say, Jesus was speaking to someone out there out there, out there, but not in here. And maybe Jesus was speaking to the circle closest to him. The parable becomes all the more startling when it comes into the intimate space of our own righteousness. The words Jesus ascribed to the Pharisee in verse 11 are not about the good life and deeds of the Pharisee, but rather the lack of humility displayed by the Pharisee. When he quotes the Pharisee as saying, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, 
or even like this tax collector. The Pharisee could be doing all of the things God hoped the Pharisee would be doing in terms of caring for the poor, in terms of being part of the worship experience at the temple, in coming to pray, in learning the Torah. And yet, all of those acts of righteousness lose their savor and their flavor and their meaning in the pridefulness of the Pharisee who now lords himself over someone else. The words ascribed to the Pharisee are not the sole property of the Pharisees. Jesus illustrates for us who are his audience. The human tendency to seek or claim the status of self-righteousness over others. Is it possible that Jesus was telling this parable to his followers to inoculate them against that which could destroy and weaken Jesus' effort to bring the kingdom of God forward? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, martyr of the Christian faith under Hitler, wrote a remarkable little book called Life Together, the Classic Exploration of Faith in the Community. He wrote these words in the 40s. There rose a reasoning among them, which of them should be the greatest, Luke 9, 46. We know who it is that sows this thought in the Christian community. Perhaps we do not bear in mind enough that no Christian community ever comes together without this thought immediately emerging as a seed of discord. Thus at the very beginning of Christian fellowship there is engendered an invisible, often unconscious life and death contest. There arose a reasoning among them, quote unquote, this is enough to destroy a fellowship. Hence it is vitally necessary that every Christian community from the very outset, face this dangerous enemy squarely and eradicate it. There is no time to lose here, for from the first moment when a man meets another person, he may look for a strategic position he can assume and hold over that person. There are strong persons and weak ones. If a man is not strong, he immediately claims the right of the weak as his own and uses it against the strong. There are gifted and ungifted persons, simple people and difficult people, devout and less devout, the sociable and the solitary, does not the ungifted person have to take up a position just as well as the gifted person, the difficult one as well as the simple? And if I am not gifted, then perhaps I am devout anyhow, or if I am not devout, it is only because I do not want to be. May not the sociable individual carry the field before him and put the timid, solitary man to shame? then may not the solitary person become the undying enemy and ultimate vanquisher of his sociable adversary. Where is there a person who does not with instinctive sureness find the spot where he can stand and defend himself, but which he will never give up to another, for which he will fight with all the drive of his instinct of self-assertion? All this can occur in the most polite and even pious environment. 
But the important thing is that a Christian community should know that somewhere in it, there will certainly be a reasoning among them which of them should be the greatest. It is the struggle of the natural man for self-justification. He finds it only in comparing himself with others, in condemning and judging others. Self-justification and judging others go together as justification by grace and serving others go together. A disturbing word from the past. Recently, I read somewhere, it is not a behavior of the kingdom to gather support for one's own position in the church so that one might have power over another. What Bonhoeffer speaks of is that which has been part of the church since time immemorial because it is comprised of human beings who are present in it. And what Bonhoeffer says is to say, be aware, don't be ignorant of the tendency of the flesh. So let me ask you a question. Is it possible that Jesus told this parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector, highlighting the Pharisee's behavior to seek status over the tax collector so that the kingdom might be protected and be righteous in its behavior because the kingdom is experienced in the community of faith among the believers. And let me ask us a question. If we are to care for the broken, if we are to be the, the refuge of those who come into the temple and say, oh God, I am broken and I do not deserve grace and mercy. What kind of community will they find shelter in? What kind of community will they find hope in? For part of this parable is the good news for the broken. For Jesus says in verse 14, he who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And Jesus says the tax collector found favor. Why? Because the tax collector humbled himself. And so I would just say to his friends that if you're here in the sound of my voice, either online in the digital world or you're here in this sanctuary this morning, if you're in this space today like the tax collector and you say, I am broken and I seek hope and I seek grace and mercy, we hope to be that place for you. And if we seek or appear to be too self-righteous, forgive us. Because we're being shaped. And we would seek to humble ourselves 
before God. Jesus' observations about humbling oneself does not suggest that one denigrate oneself and create an aura of false humility. Frederick Beekner helps us a bit by observing that true humility doesn't consist of thinking ill of oneself, but not of thinking of yourself much differently from the way you'd be apt to think of anyone else. In verse 14, Jesus reminds us that humbling ourselves is a choice that we make. Humbling ourselves does not seek to gain leverage over someone else or to declare someone else inadequate because they don't agree with me or they don't believe like I do. And can I just be pastorally frank? I have great pastoral concern about the political climate. because we're using political stereotypes to define people's faith. And it's not the proprietary property of either party. But as the people of God, we seek to be the people of God first, everything else second. Is that okay? Is it true? Is it biblically true? Is it biblically true? And so we are called to be people of grace and mercy and humility in the tradition of Christ who would receive the humbled Pharisee and the humbled tax collector with equal grace and mercy. You see, what the tax collector and the Pharisee have in common is their need for humility. Humility calls us to recognize our own need for grace and mercy without placing ourselves over others. Why does this matter? Fred Craddock believes this parable to be the most theological of all of Jesus' parables because of the focus on righteousness. What does righteousness look like? It looks like humility in which one recognizes our own brokenness, our own tendency to seek status over someone else, our own tendency to engage in stereotypes that demean another. And calls us to a place of humility before God that says, oh God, I am a person of need.
Craddock goes on to say, the congregation does not want to leave the sanctuary saying, God, thank thee, I am not like the Pharisee. <laughs> Jesus would say to us, without humility, righteousness is not possible, for without humility, there is no grace and mercy. My prayer is that these words of Jesus will form us in his image, that these words of Jesus will change us, to keep in front of us the things of Jesus and how Jesus loves and cares for someone which may be different than the way I think of someone. And my prayer is that we will think of those people in the way Jesus would think of them. Let's stand together. If you need to pray, these altars are always open. A pastor is here at the conclusion of each service. And so you are welcome here to pray. Receive this benediction from Hebrews 13. Verses 21, 20 and 21. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And everyone said,